UAP are in our airspace, but they are grossly underreported. These sightings are not rare or isolated, they are routine. Scientist Bob Lazar is convinced that the technology he saw being tested at a secret base in the Nevada desert is of alien origin. For decades, governments have kept us in the dark about who and what they are. Don't be afraid. But we seem to be getting closer to understanding, and they might have been real all along. The big question, are we alone? What was once a story worth putting on a tinfoil hat for? In these strange times, it might not be a conspiracy after all. Eyewitness testimony still lies at the heart of the criminal justice system. You know, we must listen to that. And if not, it's going to be a wild ride. If you have a machine that makes gravity, you can pretty much do anything. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Please circle whichever applies. Welcome back to Learning Things, the show where we pick a topic. We learn some things about it. Rocket science, we've covered this. It's available wherever you get your podcasts or as a YouTube video. So pick your poison and enjoy. I am rushing through this because I'm excited to get into today's topic. Can you tell? I'm excited because we're at a point at the moment where I think it's almost safe to take off the tinfoil hats. And we're going to get into why. It might not be a conspiracy theory anymore. And that's exciting. So let's get right into it. Extraterrestrial life is basically just this umbrella concept to refer to anything that might be occurring biologically outside of Earth as we know it. Not a good sentence. We know Earth pretty well by now. Outside Earth. And speculation about whether or not there are other entities living outside planet Earth actually dates back to antiquity. Early Christian writers discussed the existence of the, quote, plurality of worlds. The science they had back then, obviously, leaps and bounds, chalk and cheese to what we have today. But they were sensing that there was something else going on even back then. And there are so many UFO quotations or UAP as it's now referred to. We'll get into that later. Sightings throughout history. There's a Wikipedia page and like multiple different sources on the Internet that like encapsulates all of the different sightings. And I didn't really go into much detail on them because... I don't think you need me to. You know what most of these sightings would be. All of these sightings, I'm talking BC. I'm talking ancient Egypt. I'm talking at least 15 years ago. All of the sightings kind of are relative to their time. So people reported seeing chariots flying down from the skies or a star that would set fire to their enemies. Like it wasn't worth really deep diving that much into all of the really historical sightings. But a very long time ago, philosopher Lucretius, Lucretius wrote a poem, De Rerum Natura, which in English, it's just Latin and it means the nature of things. And he predicted that humanity would find innumerable exoplanets with life forms similar to and different from the ones on Earth. They didn't necessarily have the science to really deep dive into it and work out the peculiarities of it. But the writings do suggest that they were aware of, if not being visited by, other beings. But these days we are getting closer and we do have some means to investigate where and how these other beings might be existing. It's not always going to be, you know, that short thing with a big head like the funky looking alien. This could extend to multicellular organisms, things like plants and trees and animals, not just these funky aliens that resemble humans. It encapsulates a lot of other stuff. But trees are boring, so let's stick to the aliens today. 
So a tiny little crash course on how our planet is habitable. I'll keep this really quick, but it gets a little existential. If you're not up for existential stuff today, go away. And to be honest, I needed a crash course. I didn't listen much in science. I wasn't good at it. The only thing I remember is the way that the planets sit, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. And that is thanks to Bart Simpson in an episode of The Simpsons where he was hiding from Mrs. Krabappel and Principal Skinner when they started to do naughty things in the classroom while Bart was locked in the janitor's closet. He looked up at a poster. He read Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto so many times. And I only had that DVD of The Simpsons. So naturally, I listened to it as well. I can actually attribute that directly as the only way I know where our planets sit in the solar system. Thank you, Matt Groening. So according to scientists who study the Big Bang and our universe, as a whole, the universe that Earth sits in was far too hot to allow life initially. It wasn't for another 15 million years that temperatures started to cool a little bit to get to a temperate level, but then the elements that actually make up life didn't exist yet. The only elements around were hydrogen and helium. Carbon, oxygen, and then water like wouldn't be around for another 50 million years. So long story short, once planetary systems started forming and we had the chemical compounds that would allow to create life, we were able to start cooking. And for this reason, and for the reason of this thing called the Goldilocks zone around a star, which is just as it in the name Goldilocks, it's just like just right. Scientists believe that therefore for the same reasons, there is no reason why this can't be occurring elsewhere in the universe. Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan go as far to say that it would be improbable for life not to exist outside Earth. This brings us to the Drake Equation. In 1961, astronomer and astrophysicist Frank Drake devised the equation as a way to stimulate scientific dialogue at a meeting on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It's been controversial because even though it's a math equation, the actual formula and the values to each component of it aren't actually set in stone yet. We don't have concrete numbers for some of these components. To sum it up, the Drake equation is used to estimate the amount of active extraterrestrial civilizations that might be occurring within the Milky Way. Now, this is where it starts to get fun and a little bit, oh, I don't know, existential. We know the Earth is pretty far from the sun. The sun is 150 million kilometers away. It takes us a year just to do a lap of it. That's easy. We all know how Earth's orbit works, kind of. Moving on. That's not the scary bit. Our solar system is technically in the Milky Way. We orbit a certain section of the Milky Way at about 830,000 kilometers per hour. And yet it still takes our solar system 250 million years to do a lap. That's how big the Milky Way is, and we're only orbiting a section of it. And where our solar system orbits, it's kind of like, think of it like the suburbia of the Milky Way. It's like just off to the side, just out of the city center, or about 30,000 light years away from the city center. We've never left. Humans have actually never left our solar system. The furthest we've gone was in 1970 during the Apollo 13 mission, where we made it 400,000 kilometers away from Earth, or around there that that's the furthest we've ever gone. While humans haven't made it that far, we do have probes. If you're not aware what a probe is, it's basically something that our space agencies send up and let orbit for however many years their lifespan is to send data back to Earth so that we can get a better idea of what's out there, seeing as we can't physically go out 
and see it. <laughs> and we do have plenty of probes. One of them has successfully waddled out of our solar system, which is actually fucking huge. It's called Voyager 1. It was launched by NASA. I always do that. NASA. Oh, can you tell how much it irritates me? It's gotten to the point now where it's not fucking funny to me anymore. Stop saying NASA, Lucy. Anyway, NASA launched the Voyager 1 in 1977, and it is currently the furthest human-made item in space, which is very cool. At the moment, because of its distance away from us, because it's actually not in our solar system anymore, which is really cool, it takes 20 full hours for information to get back to us, which is really crazy when you think about it, because that just kind of shows you how far away this bitch is. But it has been over 40 years since it's launched, and the fact that it's a nuclear-powered device means that its power is, you know, depleting with every day that goes by. And so to preserve the amount of power it has, because obviously it's such a big deal that it's made its way this far out of our solar system, it's huge, it's exciting, it's showing us stuff we've never seen before. Scientists were like, let's try and keep it out there for as long as possible because it's probably going to die soon. So they turned the camera off to preserve power. And it was a really tricky decision because obviously we want to be able to see. And, and that's, I think, where NASA gets a lot of its approval for funding is a lot from the public. The more we can see and the more we are able to kind of be involved in the system, you know, when they send back photos of certain things, it's more encouraged because when the general public is so excited by something, the government's going to be like, yeah, okay, cool, keep looking. So the fact that they had to turn the camera off is sad, but it can still send back plenty of data that the scientists can use. I love space, but it, like, to be honest, it does take me a second to wrap my head around all this stuff. And that's why before we get into UFOs, I just kind of wanted to give you an idea of like how much there is actually going on out there and how little we know. There is a really scary stat actually that says that we have explored more of our solar system than we have of the ocean, which is fucking terrifying. And I'll leave that there. <laughs> but the overall message that I'm trying to kind of do with this crash course right now is to remind us all of how fucking insignificant we are in the grand scheme of things. And I don't just mean that in terms of like your life. I mean that in terms of how small Earth is in the galaxies that surround us and everything. And I don't even want to get me started on the fact that the stars we see in the sky are technically dead and they were potentially millions of years ago and not even alive anymore and that light isn't even burning anymore. It's just something that we're seeing from Earth and it's just taken that long to get there and every one of those stars could have been a fucking universe. Ahem. Based on observations the Hubble telescope has made, there are nearly two trillion galaxies in our universe. And when I say in our universe, I mean our observable universe. Observable as in what we can see from where we are and where our probes are and what we've pieced together for this map. Stay with me. <laughs> we can see about 46.1 billion light years away. Don't ask me to explain light years, I won't. But we have only reached 400,000 kilometers away. One light year equals about 9 trillion kilometers. I'm going to say that again. We can see 46.1 billion light years away. One light year is over 9 trillion kilometers. And we have only reached 400,000 kilometers as humans. So if we estimate there being nearly two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, start there. 
scientists believe that at least 10% of the sun-like stars would have a planetary solar system similar to ours, not exact. And so that means there'd be some 6.25 billion life-supporting planetary systems out there that we know about in our observable universe alone. So yeah, let's talk about aliens. We used to call them UFOs, Unidentified Flying Objects. That name has recently been changed to UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, and it's used to describe anything we see in the sky that doesn't look like it's from us. We've been spotting shit in the sky since the fucking Stone Age. That's not even exaggeration. They were probably seeing some shit there. But it really did start to ramp up after World War II and during the Space Age, which started toward the late 50s. And governments get pretty heavily involved too, mainly because you can imagine it's not cheap to study this stuff, but typically we don't really get to hear the juicy stuff and we'll get to that soon. So let's just say the governments do their best to keep it to themselves, which puts us in a really weird position when you think about it, because the only people that have the money to study this are governmental organizations. And now I suppose there are private companies that are doing it, but if they're not sharing it with anyone, then like, you know, Schrodinger's cat, is the research even being done? In the 19th century in Hitachi Prefecture of Japan, local fishermen reportedly found a vessel with small windows adrift. They said a beautiful young woman with red and white hair dressed in strange clothes emerged, holding a square box that, quote, no one was allowed to touch. And she spoke to them apparently in a language they had never heard before. I am not going to be the one to put the idea in your head that in 19th century Japan, perhaps this group of fishermen had never met a Swedish woman before. So I won't. I won't put that idea in your head. It was most certainly an alien. New Zealanders saw moving and whirring lights in the sky of Otago in 1909. Allied fighter pilots in World War II reported colourful balls of light following their aircraft at high speeds. And in 1941 in Missouri... A woman claims that her father, Reverend William Huffman of the Red Star Baptist Church, had administered last rites for the dying crew of a crashed flying saucer. I fucking love that one. <laughs> but no one seems to get a better view than pilots. US Navy pilots have had a lot of different encounters, and because of their instruments, their cameras, and their knowledge, we tend to take them a little more seriously. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. Oh my gosh, they're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. One afternoon in San Diego in 2004, two pilots were going off the coast of San Diego for a training exercise. They had a message come through the radio and the question came from the controller asking if they were armed, which they weren't. The radio then responded and told them, well, we've got a real world vector for you. Apparently, they'd been tracking some mysterious aircraft over the past couple of weeks, but every time this mysterious aircraft was there, they didn't actually have manned flights out there. So this afternoon, these two pilots got to see some seriously mysterious fucking aircraft. This, of course, is the Tic Tac story. It's famed. The footage is out there. It's on the internet. It is fun. It is weird. It is so fucking difficult for me to read radar images as if it's a video. I wish they would have picked out their iPhone for this one, but I'll take it. The objects appeared suddenly at 80,000 feet, which for those who don't know is space, then hurtled toward the sea. They'd stop at about 20,000 feet and then hover. 
and they just sit there for hours at a time. And then out of nowhere, they'd shoot right back up and disappear off the radar. When the objects disappeared from the radar, they, the two pilots went to go and have a look to see if there was anything going on in the area that this UAP had just left. It's important to note it was a perfect day, not a shred of wind, clear skies. And once these pilots got to this zone in the radar, there was nothing on the radar. They, they, there was nothing there. And they were like, what the fuck? So they started looking around and they realized at the surface of the water, there was something huge churning water up. About 50 feet above the water surface, they saw an oval-shaped 40-foot-long aircraft. Commander Fravor, one of the pilots, and he is a very pivotal part of this story and the rest of this episode, he said that the craft was jumping around erratically, but staying over this wave disturbance. He said it looked like frothy waves and foam, but he noted that it looked as if the water was like boiling. I mean, it's like when we saw it disappear when it flew in front of my nose. And I'm talking something, I'm, I'm within a half mile of it. And it gets in front of me and just disappears. And that's from two different angles. Remember, the other airplane's 8,000 feet above me. When it disappeared, I said, do you guys see it? And they said, no, it's gone. In the summer of 2014 to March 2015, strange objects like this appeared almost daily over the East Coast. One appeared to resemble a spinning top, moving at speeds we don't have the technology for. Navy pilots reported to their superiors that the objects had no visible engine or infrared exhaust plumes, but they could reach hypersonic speeds. So Lieutenant Graves, another pivotal person in this whole episode, he was a Super Hornet pilot for over 10 years with the Navy, and he reported his sightings to the Pentagon and to Congress. He said... Keeping an aircraft in the air requires a significant amount of energy. With the speeds we observed, 12 hours in the air is 11 hours longer than we'd expect. So the Tic Tac story, I think, is one that got the attention back in the public eye in terms of, hold on, we've got a credible source here. There's multiple of them. They're straight guys. Not that there's anything wrong with a gay pilot coming forward with a UFO story. I specifically just mean they are straight to the point, guys. Um, <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? So people and Congress particularly found it, I suppose, easier to believe them or to at the very least attach a little bit more credibility to a once tinfoil hat story, if you will. Because the other thing is, is that anyone who comes forward about things like this were at extreme risk of losing their jobs, losing their livelihood. Because in the past, anyone who comes forward with this kind of stuff, they don't get treated so well. Former government, government scientist has alleged that the U.S. military is flying recovered UFOs at a secret base in the Nevada desert. The allegations about the secret facility near the Groom Mountains first surfaced on Eyewitness News last Friday. Which brings us to Bob Lazar. Now, if you don't know Bob Lazar or who he is, if you are familiar with the term Area 51, Bob Lazar is basically the only reason why we know that that existed. Scientist Bob Lazar is convinced that the technology he saw being tested at a secret base in the Nevada desert is of alien origin. And for Lazar, the proof is at least partially in the furniture. One of the nine flying disks he says he saw at the base, which was designated S-4, looks exactly like this UFO photographed in Europe. So while he was working at this place, he started noticing some stuff that we just didn't have the capabilities for. 
So his job was basically just to kind of like reverse engineer one of nine crafts that were in this big facility. Something that Bob was adamant about was that we were nowhere near this level of technology. So he decided to essentially whistleblow and he told some people about it. He went to the only investigative journalist that he knew in the area, which at the time was George Knapp. He went to his team and just said, look, I've got a story. I, I, there's some weird shit going on over here. And the only reason this story really came out initially was actually by fluke, by just some accident almost. George Knapp had an interview lined up with some other guy who didn't come through that night. And so he's calling his producers and going, OK, who, who do we have? What about that UFO guy? Would, would he want to come on? At this point, Bob was actually starting to fear for his livelihood and, and his life in general because this was such classified information that he was willing to share and the government and his previous employers kind of knew what was going on. I, I, I believe they wiped his birth certificate. They wiped any record of him being employed at any place, any college university records. Everything was gone. But when George Knapp started to try and verify some of these details, he's calling up the Los Alamos Center and saying like, hi, can I just check on this employee record? And they're like, we don't have one. But then he's in the phone book for that period of time. There's a front page article of when he put a jet engine in a Honda on the Los Alamos newspaper and it labels him as a physicist. He worked there and they wiped it. Bob Lazar isn't the only person to claim inside knowledge of the flying disks at the test site. He's just the only person to say so publicly. A side note, we also requested files on a UFO sighting over Tremonton, Utah in 1952. The Navy spent more than a thousand hours studying film of that sighting, a fact that's been noted in several publications. But for purposes of our request, the Navy couldn't find those files either. So he goes on with George and he starts to explain what he is seeing and where he is seeing it. And this is where Area 51 came out. He wasn't working in Area 51. He was working down the road from it. So what was the craft? What was he working on? So he was brought in, uh, they think, kind of as like they'd hit a dead end and they needed someone to come, up, come in with new ideas. Uh, Bob alluded to the fact in his podcast with Joe Rogan, and a lot of what I'm about to talk about here is actually from that podcast. It is a fantastic to our podcast on Bob Lazar and his kind of experience there. So if you do want to watch that, I would heavily, heavily recommend it. It's a great listen. He alludes to the fact that the previous guy that, you know, he was replacing, who was previously working on this craft, had died. He wasn't 100% sure, but he was, you know, his co-worker, lab partner, had alluded to that as well. And he thinks that they had tried to, like, cut into it. So they were at dead end, complete dead end, because as he says, in science, that is really not something that you try to do with something that you don't know what it is, what power it holds, what it's capable of. The last thing you're going to do is take a fucking saw to it and just try and cut into it. So apparently this previous guy might have died working on it. He had no idea how long it was there for and extremely minimal information on what it was. They were just basically asking him to work out how it's powered, essentially, how it runs. The most important part about this craft that points us to the fact that it was technology that we are not even close to having even now is that it created its own gravitational pull. It was able to control and use gravity as power. We can't do that. We cannot affect gravity. We are not there yet. Science, in material science, that is not something that we can do. If you can control gravity, you can control time. 
yeah, we can't do that yet. There's nothing that does that. And that immediately caught my attention going, wow, this is something else. So he knew this thing was beyond our capabilities pretty quickly. The other thing was there were, there were no wires. It was just completely wireless. It was completely silent apart from when it was taking off and it was still not even really a sound. It was like a low hiss apparently that came from the back where like there was something discharging. Nothing appeared to be powering it at least in the way that we understand powered aircraft and devices. If you have a machine that makes gravity, you can pretty much do anything. You can affect time, you can have force fields, all that stuff that's in science fiction becomes reality if you have a machine that can make gravity. And what we worked on in the desert was a machine that makes gravity. In terms of like what it looks like on the inside, Bob says that he's five foot ten and the seats and the area inside he believed was made for something a lot smaller than a human. Apparently the seats kind of really pointed to that, like a human being wouldn't comfortably sit in that seat. He said it was just a seat and a reactor. It's weird. It's really interesting, weird stuff that we don't know how to use or how to harness or who the fuck is using this and how is it powered and like all of this stuff. And you can look into, there's an element that came through with one of these crafts that Bob ended up getting his hands on at one point that we didn't have at all. And a lot of people didn't believe him, but then it actually was released to the public like a decade later or something like that. And something that is very consistent, whether you believed his story initially or not, is that every single thing that Bob Lazar said in the 80s has come to fruition. So whether he is just a very lucky accidental prophet or he's telling the truth, they were awful to Bob. Um, he lost all credibility. He lost his job. Anyone who he spoke to would get a call from the government in whatever agency it was, no matter who he spoke to about anything to do with this stuff, they'd get a knock on the door. It's just really hard to understand how much his life was affected by this and at what cost. He's He seems to be a very balanced, intelligent guy who never wanted any of the fame. I think it got a bit carried away and he, you know, said yes to some interviews here and there and people assumed that he wanted the attention. That is absolutely not the vibe I get from that guy anymore. He wants people to leave him the fuck alone. You know, he kind of alludes to the fact that it's now brought in all the tinfoil hat people that he's like, I'm not one of you guys. Like, I actually saw some shit. I'm actually a physicist. I actually worked on this program. I'm not here to talk conspiracy theories. I'm here to tell you what I saw. The big question, are we alone, folks? It's a crime yes. that they're not telling yes. the rest of us. Which brings us to, you know, the whole point of why I wanted to sit down and do this one. David Grush, Grush, Grushé, he's a United States Air Force officer and a former intelligence official. He was a decorated combat officer and he was the co-lead for UAP analysis at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. He was told by unnamed officials that the US federal government maintains a highly secretive UFO or UAP recovery program and is in possession of non-human spacecraft and deceased pilots. 
So in 2022, he filed a whistleblower complaint with the US office responsible for such dealings um, in preparation to kind of share this classified information with the US Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And this is the news that came out recently. This is the stuff that came out in July that has added a whole new sense of credibility to the discussion. And as I was saying before, almost an invitation to take off the tinfoil hats. After this, I don't think you can consider someone, you know, a loony for believing in unidentified flying objects. Uh, I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. So I watched the two hour long hearing and I say that as if it was exhausting. It actually wasn't. It was really interesting. It was basically a select body of representatives on this committee that would rapid fire ask questions to three men, one of which is David Grush, the main whistleblower that was testifying on this committee. The other two were Commander Fravor and Lieutenant Graves, who we have spoken about previously already. A lot of the two hours was just like questions in terms of like how he obtained knowledge. And a lot of the times he had to turn around and be like, I'm sorry, I can't disclose that publicly because it would violate his agreement under the whistleblower program. Um, He's only protected to a certain extent, if that makes sense. But basically, Grush was made aware of some decade-long program to do with the retrieval and the reverse engineering of crashed craft. Commander Fravor told his story again. He also drew attention to the fact that it jammed the equipment, whatever this Tic Tac was. He said the radar report still wasn't released, despite him seeing it for whatever reason that was never released to the public said it was never investigated until 2009 when someone asked you know a couple of brief questions about it but still it wasn't actually ever really looked into and that's another reason why he was there testifying today what kind of reporting took place after that incident none we had a standard debrief where the backseaters went down to our uh, carrier intel center and briefed what had happened and that was it your commanding officers provide any sort of justification No, because I was the commanding officer of the squadron, so no. But Commander Fravor again stresses that whatever is going on, it is far superior intelligence-wise to what we have had in the past, now, or in the next two decades. Now, Ryan Graves, who was known to us as Lieutenant Graves earlier, the former Super Hornet pilot for over 10 years with the Navy, He's now the executive director of this company called Americans for Safe Aerospace. And basically what he's doing is working with currently over 30, but there are thousands of others, pilots, both commercial and military, who have seen something like a UAP, but have no real way of reporting it. And that's a really important point to remember that there are commercial pilots that see this shit as well, and it never comes to the light of day. And there's a reason for that. So first of all, their instruments aren't the same as military aircraft. Obviously, they don't have the same range on their radar to detect a threat. The other problem is, is that you don't need me to tell you how important it is for pilots to be able to distinguish between friend and foe when they're in the sky, particularly military, but nonetheless commercial as well, because they're up there as well. Technically, they're under threat if there's something else in the airspace that air control hasn't seen. So They need the ability to work out, hey, should I be telling someone about this or am I going to lose my job and credibility if they think that I'm being a fucking lunatic? And that's what was happening. 
because the commercial airlining system has no way of reporting UAPs. They don't have a relevant agency to go through yet, and that's part of the reason why Lieutenant Graves was there. So the American public should know that corporations are putting their own reputations ahead of the safety of the American people, and I think, would you agree with that statement? It appears so. So that's a really interesting point, but we'll move forward from that. Graves also goes on to say that his estimate is that 95% of these UAP sightings from commercial pilots and military pilots go completely unreported. So there could be a lot more happening out there that there just is no system in place for pilots to A, tell their story or report their sightings, and B, be protected and not hinder their livelihood for doing so. And the big thing really about this committee and this hearing was that, yes, it could be a matter of national security if the government does release all the findings that they have. There's no possible way for it to be, you know, Russia or China. We don't have material science in the world yet that can do that stuff. I wouldn't put it past another nation to keep it private, but at the same time, if you've got that technology, if you can control gravity, it would change our lives forever. There is no way they would keep that to themselves forever. And certainly not to just fuck with us. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, pretty lights in the sky. If you've got that technology, we'd be using it by now. So there's definitely no way that another country has it. But at the same time, maybe the US government just wants to be the first people to work it out. Maybe that's why they're keeping it private. How do you know that these were not our aircraft? Some of the behaviors that we saw in a working area, we would see these objects being at 0.0 Mach. That's zero airspeed. These objects were staying completely stationary in category four hurricane winds. These same objects would then accelerate to supersonic speeds, 1.1, 1.2 Mach. Uh, and they would do so in very erratic and, and quick behaviors that we don't, I don't have an explanation for. These three men all unanimously agreed that this is an issue of national security. And just you have to tell the public. That's what they were all saying. It's like this is something that is bigger than us. This is something that is bigger than national security in a lot of ways. This is something that is bigger than everything we know about our life. But there are others out there. We're not alone. I found this part funny when uh, this bloke brought up his anniversary. Today is my anniversary, so I want to tell my wife happy anniversary and that I love her very much. As she likes to say, this nine years have been the best two years of her life. Grish testified to the fact that he is aware of people being injured by both UAP craft and whatever biological being was in there. And of course, the big grab of this whole two-hour hearing was when he reveals that he is aware of these programs being in possession of non-human dead pilots. If you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. Another really interesting point that Commander Fravor made was that if these items and craft are so advanced, why are they crashing? I find that really fascinating and a really good and fair question, to be honest. Like, if you guys are this far ahead and you can travel at supersonic speeds, why are you crashing? Oh, and that's another thing to support the fact that other countries, this isn't the work of other countries. Humans actually can't uh, withstand the G-force of the speeds at which these crafts are 
reported to be traveling at. Like it, it's just not possible for us. We have not adapted to that. No human could survive those levels of G-force. So it's definitely not manned by us, to put simply. You know, I was an accident investigator. So the biggest thing that you learn and I think that witnesses need to, to do is one, don't try and make the fish bigger than it was. Stick to the facts, write it down, and don't speculate what you think it is because it will spoil your decision. Just write the facts down. We can get all the facts together and we can start to investigate and get a real honest story instead of it was this big. Thank you, Alan. I want to thank everybody. We made history today. The other thing that this hearing did in terms of Bob Lazar is basically validate everything he's ever said. Like, one of the comments on the YouTube video underneath this congressional hearing was that, oh my God, Bob was right all along. Like everything, even just from the phrase uh, multi-decade uh, operation to, what was it? Retrieve and reverse engineer crashed craft. That's what Bob said he did. So if you are interested in the Bob Lazar story, look him up. I would stray from the documentary. I paid $7 to rent that fucking one of the weirdest documentaries I have ever watched. It seems like a vanity piece from the director because he was in it far more than Bob Lazar was. Also, I had sativa in my system. So if anything, I was enjoying it more than I possibly could have while sober. Skip that. Joe Rogan interview was great. Any of his archived stuff, if you do want to have a little look at what might be in store for us in terms of what's being released by the government to do with UFOs, hit up Bob Lazar. Whenever anyone brings kind of like aliens up with me, I, um, as I said before, I'm not a huge space fanatic. I love it, but I don't really understand it that much, to be completely honest. It's it's just a bit big for my brain. But like, I can understand our universe is so unbelievably large and mostly untouched by us. I think it would be ignorant and, to be honest, just plain dumb to suggest that we're the only ones here. I'm so excited, to be honest, to be living in a time where we might work this out. We might crack this. We might be able to harness that kind of power. Who knows? And yeah, like you could get existential and, and say that the existence of these otherworldly beings might point to us being run by a simulation. I don't know how much I get around that idea. Whichever one of you motherfuckers is running me, let's have a chat, shall we? That's a good question. If you could meet the person, if you could meet the alien in charge of your simulation, what would you say to them? Because I've got some choice words. But please let me know what you think. Ultimately, I want to talk to people about this. I don't think you realize, but I sit here and I, I research these topics and then I just talk into the microphone about it. Like I don't typically get to really discuss this shit with anyone afterwards, but I'm still fascinated by it. Let me know what you think. If you don't agree with me, please, let's talk. But other than that, thank you so much for listening, watching. Hope you have a good rest of your day. Subscribe if you're on the YouTube. I would very much appreciate that. Give this video a thumbs up and I will see you guys next time.